This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Elizabeth Stellman, CFO of Exactly, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 522. to help drive my team to be creative thinkers, think through potentially some process re-engineering, don't think that the way we did it before is the way we have to do it, help them to provide data to the rest of our organization. What I really measure success on for the finance organization is that teams start coming to us to pull information out from us, to pull metrics instead of finance team constantly going to the rest of the organization. I'd rather have them come to me than me have to go to them. And I think that kind of two-way transparency in an organization is, is, is really the key measure of success between finance and the rest of the teams. It's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Marty Meyer, CFO of GAN Integrity. Marty joined his first startup as CFO back in 1995. Nine other startup tours of duty would follow, six of them ending in successful exits. He is without a doubt. Marty is without a doubt a textbook example of a startup CFO. We speak to Marty about his latest startup tour of duty as CFO of SaaS company GAN Integrity. We begin after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu, and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful at planful.com. CFO of GAN Integrity. Marty, welcome. Thank you for having me. Marty, you'd like, you are what we like to refer to as an entrepreneurial CFO. And before this episode's over, I think our, our listening audience will understand. Uh, but if you wouldn't mind, as always, we ask our guests to look backwards for us. And tell us a little bit about those experiences that prepared you to play this role and, and again, I'll emphasize it, an entrepreneurial CFO. Um, tell us about that. Great. Well, uh, I took a very non-traditional path to becoming 
a CFO and finance leader. I actually started my career as a computer systems engineer and worked uh, in that profession for about eight years. Went to school uh, at night to get my MBA from a school called Babson College, which is a very entrepreneurial focused business school in Boston. Um, and then talked my way into working in the finance department of the company where I was an engineer. So already sort of fairly non-traditional path forward. While I was in that role, I met and worked with some super smart folks. And one of those people who I had developed a relationship with and done some strategic business planning, left the company, went to a startup, and subsequently gave me a call after a few months asking for help and wanting to know if I wanted to be the CFO of the company. Um, I never had done that role before. I had very little experience other than being good at business modeling, forecasting, budgeting, uh, but very little outside of that, that that typical CFOs would have. Um, took the risk and went for it and turned out to be a, a good four and a half, five year stint of building a company from zero to 50 million and then uh, having a successful M&A exit and uh, becoming uh, much more experienced in what it takes to work in the startup technology space and really loved it and, and have been doing that ever since. Can I ask, and, and uh, we'll ask more about your, your career a little later in the episode as well, but um, how many startups have you been involved with during the course of your career? Yeah, so the first startup I joined was a company called Vidia, and that was uh, in 1995. Uh, and I've been at 10, uh, this is my 10th, GAN Integrity is the 10th startup that I've uh, participated in. Uh, six of those have had successful uh, exits. So it's been, uh, it's been a fun ride. And those exits were, uh, well, they were acquired ultimately. Yeah, all, all of those were yep. acquired by uh, typically strategic, large strategic tech companies. So tell us about uh, GAN Integrity, the types of offerings this company has today and the customers uh, it serves today. Yeah, it's a pretty exciting opportunity. Uh, GAN is an integrated compliance management SaaS platform. So we enable our customers to do the right thing, operate ethically, uh, follow business practices, protect their value, and protect their reputation, uh, and have a, uh, an integrated platform for doing that. Um, our opportunity is pretty immense. Our, our total adjustable market is, is virtually every publicly listed company in the world, along with any large private or public organization, which is subject to some sort of external or internal regulations or policy enforcement. Um, we're a fairly early stage company. Um, and, you know, we have uh, really the only solution that looks at, uh, so when I talk about compliance, what I mean is companies will do third party due diligence on their supply chain. They will implement uh, compliance program workflow for uh, creating policies, uh, code of, codes of conduct, uh, conflicts of interest, anti-bribery, need to do uh, policy rollouts and online training for their employees for that, setting up whistleblower case management, 
uh, files. All of this is done under one platform that's easy to manage, access, and is auditable uh, in the case that you need to do that with regulators. Now, I'm curious, you said this was an early stage company. Is this sort of uh, the typical company you would become involved with in terms of its maturity and stage of development? It's slightly earlier. So this is, uh, we just raised the Series B in January uh, of 2019. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's uncommon, but it, it's slightly earlier than I would normally be stepping into at this point in my career. But I joined uh, the, CFO, the CEO of my former company, uh, Sailthrough, who came to GAN Integrity first, and then uh, recruited me into to work with him again. So that was a a big driver along with uh, the opportunity uh, itself. It's just such a good opportunity to discover what sets you apart, perhaps, from more traditional CFOs. It seems to me that you are part uh, helping shape the vision, uh, more so than perhaps more mature companies where the, where the product market fit has been achieved, where it's often about uh, taking existing processes and and taking them to the next level or adopting a new level of sophistication, in many ways you're, you're really establishing the processes. Am I, am I correct, or how, how would you look at it? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's right. I think I've always been much more operationally focused than some other more traditional uh, CFOs, and, and that's because I came from this operational background where I was uh, in engineering uh, first, um, and even at my, uh, the first startup I started at, I, I literally at some point ran everything that wasn't marketing or engineering, uh, you know, including HR, legal, contract manufacturing, international sales, customer support. Um, so I've always been willing to and super interested in actually digging into the operational elements of the business and figuring out how we can position ourselves to, to scale and become successful and, of course, be efficient and, and cost-effective. And when you stepped into this role, is it is it you mentioned the uh, investment that was made. It's about raising money. It's about helping investors understand uh, the opportunity that lies out there for these types of offerings. In a way, that's definitely part of it because we'll, we'll come sometime late next year, uh, early the following year, definitely be looking at raising uh, probably a larger growth round. Um, so that's definitely a, a part of what we're doing. But I think myself and Neil Lustig, our CEO, are here mostly to think about how do we go from the you know, 145 customers that we have today, some of the, the, the largest companies in the world, and how do we expand that to a thousand companies? How do we make sure that we're focused on customer satisfaction and, and driving referrals and pipeline and, and just thinking about efficiency of the, the company and, and how do we operationally execute to be successful, to, to be able to access that growth equity and then beyond drive you know, value in the company. So how are you going to measure uh, your success. So six months from now, is it the number of customers you're serving, or what are you looking at exactly? The burn rate? What, what is it that you're looking at? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, for me, I, I 
focused, especially at this stage of company, growth is definitely super important. So uh, focusing on, and because we're a SaaS company, uh, the annual recurring revenue, so the ARR growth is, is definitely key. So that encompasses a lot of different things. It, it encompasses how many new customers you can uh, attain and, and attract to your offering, as well as how many customers possibly leave your offering. So, you know, there's the top of the funnel, bottom of the funnel, and making sure that you're constantly growing up and to the right. Um, and then I look at the cost of acquiring that growth. So there are, there are some classic metrics like uh, long-term value to cost of acquisition, so LTV to CAC ratios. There, there's a, a thing called a magic number, which is basically the change in ARR from one quarter to the next. Um, divided by the amount of marketing and sales spend uh, to get that change in ARR. Um, and then from a, a customer SAP perspective, which is really important, we're, we're always looking at gross churn and contraction numbers or, or commonly called net dollar retention um, and our NPS scores because we believe that with the referral channel, our customers being happy, talking about us in the market, especially in the compliance space, which is a fairly close-knit uh, group of professionals uh, is really important. I'd be curious, uh, in light of your career and all these different startups you have been part of in the past, as you moved into the SaaS world, I don't think this is your first SaaS company, I would imagine, um, but as a CFO who uh, was part of the old world as well as the new, let's just say, SaaS world, um, what it's revealed to you how exciting is this? I can I can really look into and see the, you know, the customer experience. These renewable. You had new ways to measure the business that you didn't have in the old world. Do you look at the Do you look at it that way or no? Yeah, definitely. I, I think one of the the most important sort of switches when you sort of move from what might have been enterprise software or network equipment into the the SaaS world is the focus on not only acquiring customers, but maintaining them, growing them, expanding them. Um, that base of repeatable, predictable revenue is what investors love about SaaS. So it, it really drives a focus on customer success uh, because it's so important to to keep the customers that you have happy, keep them growing and expanding uh, and spending more with you and referring to other potential prospects uh, as much as it is to drive new growth and new customers. So, you know, I, I tend to, once I joined SaaS, start looking at a bunch of different metrics that I might not have looked at before. Um, one of the ones that I, I really like to use is coming up with a holistic customer health score. So something where you could look at data from across your organization and figure out how is this customer really doing? Um, are they what would you would consider your ideal customer profile is? How do we focus on targeting those kind of companies? How do we focus on staying away from the ones that aren't? And, and some of that I'm doing by uh, looking at things like product utilization. If we, in a SaaS company, you might have four or five, six different 
modules or products? Are they using one or six of them? If they bought them, are they using them? What's their payment history look like? How many support tickets are they generating? And, and maybe then segmenting that by these ARR bands. And, and that starts to really inform you about your customers and whether they are truly happy or not uh, in some other non-traditional ways versus, let's say, a straightforward customer SAT or NPS survey, which are all important, but it, it's good to kind of look across the org and figure out um, who's your best customer. And then you can kind of focus on them, focus on attracting those kind of customers, focus on making those customers happy, and, and good things tend to happen after that. That, that emphasis on the customer, much larger companies have, have sort of struggled in some ways because they had organizationally sort of been restrictive, whereas you get to seat certain people around the table in a small environment and have that type of conversation asking about the health of certain customer relationships, what do the numbers reveal. Larger organizations sometimes struggle to get the right people in those seats. And, and here you are sort of uh, – Designing the company, let's make certain uh, our customer service people are talking to us more. Whatever it might be, I'm sure you're looking at data that reveals these things, but it seems to me that uh, those customer relationships, there are people who uh, are keeping a closer eye than perhaps uh, sales, or uh, would you disagree? No, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's the responsibility of everyone in our company to think customer first and make sure that we're selling them products that we actually have uh, and, and features that we actually have and then uh, thinking through the data. So we'll look at data, for instance, to figure out, okay, well, how are we doing as we're implementing new customers? You know, we, we've, we have implementation teams. Um, they need to, to bring our, our new customers uh, to their go-live points. How long is that taking? What kind of tasks are we doing? And then, you know, we try to drive that back through our development group to say, look, you have to make a trade-off between often do you do new roadmap items, new functionality, or do you try to make things more uh, efficient or easier to use for your current customer base? That's always a balancing act, but we're trying to make sure that we focus on that balance and feedback information that, hey, if we made a, uh, a change, it might take us a couple of weeks to do the, the coding, but once we do this, we could cut the implementation time for our customers in half. And turns out that implementation process is really the first interaction we're really having with those customers. So, uh, you know, we want to make a, a great impression on them, start that relationship off on a good note with a lot of trust and, and success. And, and that'll lead to, to good things in the future. Okay. I like the way you explain that. I'm going to take a sidebar here because I, I wasn't uh, articulating very well what I was after. I, what, I'm, what occurs to me is that as all this new attention gets placed on the customer, customer relationships, customer success, com executives like yourself, leaders like yourself, have the opportunity to design and scale a new company that, is influenced by that attention, that, that new emphasis placed on the customer, and perhaps the organization as it scales would look different from organizations designed in the last century that have sought to, uh, uh, you know, quickly 
uh, modify how they do things, uh, but they never work quite right. Uh, anyway, does any of that make sense to you, or am I uh, just rambling here? Yeah, no. I mean, I, look, I think there are, there's so much success out there of you know, the greatest – if you look at the greatest companies in the world, they're all super customer-focused, customer-centric companies. You, know, you can look at Southwest Airlines or Amazon or you – know, all of these companies are, are using massive amounts of data to analyze what is driving customer behavior and customer success. And then the good ones are feeding that back into how they organize their companies, how they operate their companies, um, and, and how they proceed forward in their in designing their vision. So uh, it's it's super important. And, and for a SaaS company, you know, it's the it's the basis for success. One of the things you uh, explained uh, during uh, the discussion there was uh, the installation phase. When the people finally walk through the de- uh, the door, you already have signed the deal, and they're imp- they begin the implementation. They be- begin interacting at the customer site uh, with with the customers' people. It's such an opportunity uh, to really build a strong relationship, or to blow it up. <laughs> Am I overstating that? No, I mean it's it's an often overlooked area. You know, you're, but it is the first interaction that your company technically has with your customer. You know, you've sold them, you've pitched them, uh, you've gone through the contracting process, you've done all of that, but, but you haven't really engaged with them technically until you start doing the, the implementation. So it, it is that first, uh, that first impression that you're making uh, and working with those teams and building a partnership with them. Uh, so really important. Um, and it's and it's an area that I really like to focus on and, and bring some financial data to the people who run those organizations in order to help them serve the customers better and operate more efficiently. Yeah, and, and the talent that walks through the door, how important that is. I think often we emphasize the sales talent. Yeah, but we know we know it's bigger than that. It's really a part of the company culture. It's a it's a shared value across the company where employees are really taking ownership of uh, serving customers. This belongs to us. This is what we're here for. Um, I'm gonna jump. I've been uh, rambling a little here, but I want to ask you about a finance strategic moment. This is when we we ask uh, finance leaders to look back over the course of their career and identify moments of insight that they've experienced given their lines of sight into the organization. Uh, I'm sure you have had many along the way, given the, uh, the startup environment and how opportunities first come to the surface. Um, but what would you share with us if we asked you for a finance uh, strategic moment? Yeah, so I think I'm going to follow on with my example of implementation teams and, and, and how do we help them as, as finance leaders for me, it's all about how can I partner with the leaders of my company? How can I help them uh, look at data, analyze data, and operate uh, a, a better department, whatever that is, marketing, professional services, R&D. Um, and a good example of that is in a few companies that I've been with, you know, the implementation teams and customer success teams, they're doing their thing, they're bringing on customers, they're not really focusing on 
financial metrics uh, or, or any other kind of efficiency metrics. So they're just trying to get customers on board as fast as they can and hopefully do it the right way. Um, at some point, uh, I've sat down with, uh, you know, the VPs of our professional services teams and help them think through defining financial metrics to, to use to run their part of the business. So creating a P&L for them, it's, it's a little bit more difficult in the services space in the SaaS world because gap accounting basically spreads those revenues out over the life of the contract. So you have to kind of take a little bit of a uh, non-gap approach to this, but figuring out, uh, you know, billable utilization of, of the staff, hours applied to each of the projects that you're going to, to do and what you've completed, figuring out some burden costs per hour and, and looking at all of that against the implementation fees that you're charging and collecting and building out those custom P&Ls really empowers the, the services team leaders to understand their business. When's the right time to request to add additional resources to potentially ramp up in front of new customers or request changes from the development teams to make implementation more efficient because it's, you know, taking too long to do these projects and we're, we're actually losing money uh, or tightening up the scope of SOWs we do with customers and using more of a change order process if scope creeps uh, and, and they need to make these changes versus a lot of places not even thinking about those and, and really losing efficiency, money, and, and customer sat um, by not thinking about it as its own little business. Um, and that's really been able to like empower these, these leaders to, to take control of their own element, have something to, to measure against, uh, and to really think through how they're scaling their business. Um, so for me, the, those kind of things, the, the ability to kind of transform the way that teams think about their success that, to me, is the game changer of what a good finance leader can bring to the table. CFO Marty Meyer enters the mentoring round with us after this. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. We're going to jump to our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire and mentor future finance leaders. What is it that's exciting you today? about finance and business? Yeah, I, I personally, I love it. I mean, it, it, from my perspective, I am, again, beyond, I, I would I really hate a job that was just do a bunch of business model forecasts and do some budgeting and go in a corner and leave us alone. I, I'm really, really interested in the use of data, it could be large data sets or, or, or 
uh, information out of your own proprietary systems, but using data to help drive uh, sort of capital efficiency in scaling your business and, and creating value. So, and, and I think finance is an awesome place for that. And there seems to always be some amazing problem to have to work on every day uh, as part of the, the finance team. Um, and I'm, that, that's my personality. I like to, you know, fight a fire every day, solve a problem every day, learn something new every day. You know, we're always doing something different. We may be expanding to five countries that I've never uh, worked in before. So I've got to learn, you know, labor laws or, or tax uh, regulations or other things. So I, I just think there's a, sort of an infinite amount of growth of knowledge you can do in this field. Uh, and it really, it really excites me every day to come in and uh, think about what could be next. Not unlike that first opportunity where you stepped into the CFO role. There's another CFO today stepping into their first entrepreneurial startup CFO role. What is that piece of advice you, you would give them? Well, definitely I would say take the risk of uh, going beyond the sort of traditional finance role. Listen to, you know, learn and listen about what's going on in R&D and, and what the marketing strategy is and uh, how, start thinking through how you could help design metrics to measure success. I always say, I'm gonna do a forecast, you know, I'll do several forecasts a year, absolutely zero of them are going to be right, right? It's, we're never going to get a perfect forecast. Um, things are always gonna be dynamic and changing and, and we all have to be agile uh, around that. Um, so I always like to, to recommend that these new CFOs partner, become an advisor and you know, look at, approach the job in a consultative way with their uh, peers uh, in the organization and really figure out how to help those teams uh, make a plan, set goals, measure those, and then, you know, do a retro and figure out what went right, what went wrong, you know, how could we, how could we continuously improve and, and, and just help the companies grow. And, and you could really take a lot of pride and uh, have a huge impact uh, in an organization if, if you approach it that way versus you know, some traditional CFOs are more sort of prescriptive and, and, and controlling. And I'd rather see CFOs uh, lean towards the sort of partnership advisory uh, way of doing business. Do you have a personal habit or routine you believe has contributed to your professional success in some way? I don't know about uh, a specific habit. I, I think I'm just a, uh, I've always been sort of an intense worker. So I don't think I've ever been the smartest person in the room, but I definitely work as hard as anyone. And, and I have sort of enormous uh, sort of ethical uh, and, and sort of trustworthy uh, relationships. So, you know, I've built up relationships over the last 20 plus years with commercial bankers or lawyers or venture capital investors. Um, and they all know that, you know, they can absolutely trust me. If there's something going on that 
is good, I will let them know. If there's something going on that is uh, less than optimal, I will also uh, inform them and let them know. And I think having that kind of transparent approach is, has been super helpful in, in sort of my success because, you know, I, I need to depend on a lot of people both inside our companies and out uh, to, to drive success. And, uh, and I think trustworthiness and, and sort of having those high ethics are, are, are critical. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? Um, I don't know about aspiring finance leaders, but uh, there's a book that I love, which I think is really helpful uh, if you're going to participate in uh, legal negotiations, which you often are as a CFO, uh, and those could be internal negotiations or uh, external. Um, there's a book called Negotiating the Impossible uh, by uh, a gentleman named Deepak Malhotra, which is an awesome book, like just talking about how to reframe uh, different points of views um, and, and communicate uh, in order to sort of break uh, deadlocks. And, and you'll run into tons of those in your career uh, in finance, whether again, whether that's internal or external. Uh, and, and I found it really insightful and, and really helpful. Wow. Okay, great. Uh, another first-time uh, referral, so we appreciate it. Haven't had that one before. Our final question, as you look forward, finally we're asking you to look forward. Over the next 12 months, what are your priorities as a finance leader? Yeah, so uh, the first thing is that uh, I'm going to uh, build up my team a little bit. So coming in, I uh, really inherited a very small team, uh, one accountant, one legal resource, um, and that's just not enough to bring value to the organization. Uh, it's enough for us to just sit there and, and process payroll and invoices and book journal entries and just keep up with things. Um, so build up the team uh, a little bit, not a lot. I uh, always want to be as lean as possible and, and be a good example uh, to the rest of the org. But I want to help drive my team to be creative thinkers, uh, think through potentially some process re-engineering. Don't think that the way we did it before is the way we have to do it. Um, and help them to provide data to the rest of our organization. Um, what I really want, what I really measure success on for the finance organization is that teams start coming to us to pull information out from us, to pull ideas, pull information, pull data, pull metrics, um, instead of the finance team constantly going to the rest of the organization to try to get information on potentially how much are you going to spend next quarter or you know what's your budget look like or how much travel are you going to do. I, I really wanted to, to drive a pull uh, you know rather than you know the, the push and pull. I, I'd, I'd rather have them come to me than me have to go to them and I think that kind of two-way transparency in an organization is, is, is really the key measure of success between finance and the rest of the teams. Marty Meyer, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Awesome. I really appreciate it. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, 
check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.